Well, today, is, today we're going to talk about perfection. And so uh, since I've been kind of joking around the fact that, you know, I am... Do I have to say it? For those of you who are guests today, if you haven't caught on by now, I just want to let you know that I am the perfect pastor. So I have found my own list of perfect qualities. This is entitled, The Perfect Pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. Well, I failed that. He condemns sin, but never hurts anyone's feelings. Failed there. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also, is also the church janitor. Sometimes that's true. The perfect pastor makes $400 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $300 a week to the church. He is 29 years old and has 40 years' experience. Above all, he is handsome. <laughs> the perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with senior adults. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work at the church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. The perfect pastor always has time for church functions and all of his committee meetings. He never misses a single meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. On what I found, here's the caption, and I almost didn't want to read this, but I'm going to read it anyway because it's part of, of what I found. This is a letter, and it's entitled, The Perfect Pastor is Always in the Next Church Over. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got the old pastor back in less than three months. So how many of those did I meet? Not even the first one, did I? You know, today's subject is, is somewhat hard because as we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says at the end of the fine-tuning of the six attitudes that he wants us to address, he says to his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody in here perfect? Anybody? I have one or two comedians out there raise their hands. Well, you're a figment in your own imagination. There's no such thing as a perfect person. Did you know that there are no such thing, there's no such thing as a perfect church? I found this also, a poem that says, I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deke and none are proud and all are meek. 
Where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize, where all are always sweet and kind and all to others, faults are blind. Sounds like Emmanuel, doesn't it? Such perfect churches there must be, but none of them are known to me, but still we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. Is there such a thing as a perfect church? You hesitate. No. No such thing as a perfect church because there are no perfect people. Churches are made up of people, and there are no perfect people. Nobody's perfect. I am a nobody, therefore I am perfect. False. So let me just get right off the bat this morning and tell you, not a single one of us in here is perfect. You have yet to reach the state of perfection. I hate to crush your ego or to drop your opinion of yourself down a notch or two, but you have not reached perfection as of yet. Now, for some of us, I think that's, that's kind of like a whew, praise the Lord. You know, I thought I was the only one in this room who was feeling a little bit inadequate, feeling a little less than perfect. Because the reality is that some of us in here sort of walk around on a day-to-day basis with this struggle and this stress in regard to perfection. We just can't seem to attain perfection, so we walk around with this guilt trip, with this inferiority complex, with this idea and this understanding that we are the only ones on the planet, in the church, who have to struggle with our imperfection. The reality is that every one of us in here is imperfect. You are yet to be perfect. While you're being perfected, you have not yet arrived. So you're in the same boat with all of us here this morning, none of us is perfect. Now, for some of us, that's bad news because there are many of us what I would call hypocrites. Back in the day of Jesus, there were some who called themselves or presented themselves as perfect. The scribes and the Pharisees that we're going to look at in just a minute were those who presented themselves to others perfect. And they wore their facade, their mask, their game, and their pretense well. And when they showed out in public, they were so pious that everyone was convinced that these guys, above all, have reached the state of perfection. But the reality was that they were anything but perfect. They were a figment in their own imagination. They had not lived up to their claims. And in Jesus' Jesus' words that we've seen in the last six Sundays, they were anything but perfect. They were imperfect people claiming to be perfect. And so some of us in here this morning need to dust off our hypocrisy and sort of come to terms with our imperfection and our inability to rise to the standard that Jesus has set and to openly confess, you know what, I'm no different than anyone else in this room. I am imperfect. No matter what I project, no matter what I claim, no matter what I say, no matter what I want others to think about me, I have yet to be perfect. I don't care how far you have made in this journey, how much you have won, how many victories and how many battles you have been able to overcome and how many temptations you have said no to, you this morning are not perfect. None of us are perfect here this morning. And for some of us in here this morning, some of us have given up on perfection. We understand and recognize the reality of our imperfections, and because of that imperfect state that we are and we find ourselves in, we are too often familiar and reminded of our imperfection as we know that in reaching this goal called perfection, we always fall short. No matter 
how the temptations come or the choices that are presented to us, we always choose according to the flesh. We have temptations that are just constantly hounding us and haunting us and degrading us and holding us in bondage. And, and because of that, because of, our, of this, this elusive goal called perfection, we have just thrown in the towel and we said, you know what, I can't do it, so I'm not even going to try and we've stopped. And we've let the enemy defeat us. And we've let the enemy whisper, failure, loser, imperfect. And so we've just stopped. And some of us have taken even another step in the direction where, where perfection we have already admitted is unattainable. So why not just enjoy sin? Why struggle with it? We can't seem to resist it and overcome it. So... Let's just let it go. It's the wrong idea for a Christ follower. It's the wrong direction for a disciple of Jesus. But we're going to see this morning that Jesus is calling out his disciples to not only live a life of perfection, but to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's take a look at the text this morning. I want us to look at four things. First of all, I want to look at the call to perfection. Jesus extends a call to perfection. Notice in verse 48 in Matthew chapter 5, the two words, you, therefore. Simply, you, therefore. We're familiar with the word you because we have seen it time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is constantly referring to you. And we have already identified that he is calling out those who wish and those who desire to step out of the crowd and to respond individually, to respond personally to the call of discipleship. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You who are my disciples are the salt. You who are my disciples, in verse, 15, in verse 14, you are the light of the world. You, in verses 5, 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43, you have heard it said, but I say to you who are my disciples, he is calling them out of this crowd, of this community, this congregation that is assembled there on the Sermon on the Mount who are listening to Jesus preach this message. And he's saying, I want you who are listening to my voice right now on the Sermon on the Mount in this message to step outside of yourselves, your own self-righteousness that you know that you're incapable of living up to no matter what facade or pretense or game you're playing, no matter what you claim, step out of that crowd and come to me. I'm calling you unto myself. You, therefore. Interesting, the word therefore is an interesting word. It sort of sums up all of the six things that Jesus has said up until this point. Those of you who want to overcome anger, those of you who want to overcome lust, those of you who want to love as you're supposed to love, those of you who want to be my disciples need to come unto me because you recognize and realize that in your own effort, there's no way in the world that you're going to be able to live up to that which I'm giving to you. In other words, if you take a look at the text, it says that he basically is the one that we must turn to in order to rise to the level of this, of this new dimension or this, this return to the dimension that Jesus has, is elevating, which God has, has already ordained and set for them way back when. Remember, they were living according to the, to the oral law, but he's saying, but let me tell you what God says. Or man a long time ago had realized his inability to rise up to a standard of God, so he diminished the standard in order to bring it down to a level that would allow him to live it. 
And Jesus is saying, no, I want to I w- I call you to a higher standard, to a higher quality of life. And the only way you can rise to that level is to come to me, follow me, and I'll show you how. In Matthew chapter 19, we have a story about a young man who was trying to do exactly that. He's trying to live at a different standard. And in all of his effort, he failed, failed miserably. And he recognized and realized, every time he looked into the spiritual mirror, he realized and recognized that no matter how much effort he put forward, no matter how much discipline he exhibited, he always fell short of the standard of perfection. So much so that he came to Christ. And he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how must I inherit eternal life? For he knew that the only way to inherit eternal life was to be perfect. And he recognized his inability to live up to that perfection. And Jesus said, well, why do you come to me? I want you to follow the commandments. He said, which ones? And he then gives the man a list of commandments. Commandment to murder and to love your father and to honor your mother and father. And, and, and the young man turns to Christ after having given, been given the list and said, I have done these things. What more do I lack? And then Jesus says to him in the text in Matthew 19, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect... If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. In other words, follow me, and I will reveal to you the standard of perfection. Let go of your own self-effort and what you've accumulated, and then let go of all that you have attained, recognizing and realizing that in spite of your best effort, you have not attained the level of perfection that you know is necessary to receive eternal life. Follow me, and I will then provide for you what you lack. And the young man walked away, the Bible said, because he was sorrowful, because he had many possessions. We've been talking about the heartstrings, and the reason we call the six attitudes heartstrings was because, remember, we addressed the heartstrings as attitudes of the heart. And what this young man had was a problem of the heart, for his heart was sinful. In spite of all of the activity of perfection that he exhibited and he claimed and professed, his heart was still imperfect. And this bothered the disciples so much so that they turned to Jesus and said, well, if this man can't be saved, then who can? You see, they believed that a man who was wealthy and a man of this caliber who presented himself to Jesus to be a Christ follower, they they thought if, if there's anyone who has God's favor upon his life, it would have been this rich man because they believed that because of your wealth, you had found favor with God. And the only way to find favor with God was then to live a life that was perfect or righteously. So if this man, having lived this kind of righteous life and having attained this kind of sanctification, if this man, having God's favor, having been now favored by God with this wealth, if he can't follow, then how do we humble, little, insignificant, poor, common people, how could then we then live a perfect life in order to be saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible But with God, all things become possible. You see, the only way for you and I to live a perfect life is to answer the call to follow Christ. The call to place our faith and trust in him and to receive him as our personal Savior and Lord. It's a call to turn away from our own self-effort and to turn to Christ and what he supplies in our lack and in our insufficiency. 
You cannot in and of yourself, independently and apart from faith in Jesus, ever accomplish or ever attain a level or a state of perfection in order to justify yourself, in order to present yourself to God, to find his favor, and to be received into heaven. It's through a call, a call to follow Christ. So we've seen the call to perfection. Let's look at then the command for perfection. Once we've accepted the call to follow Christ, there's a command to be holy. We have a tendency to think, I think, well, since Jesus did it all, then therefore I don't have to do anything. And Scripture constantly, continually reminds us that even though we have answered a call and we've put our complete and total dependence upon him, we still then have to act accordingly. For example... Perfection or what we're going to call sanctification, they're one of the same. Perfection and sanctification require two things. They require from us, first of all, that we be dependent upon Christ. But it also calls from us an activity of holiness. For we must then answer the call to then live perfectly. We're going to talk about this passivity that we have in just a moment. We're going to talk about the command first because we're going to get to the Lord's Supper in what he's provided for us and the work that we found through faith in Christ, the work that God has done for us through the Spirit. But for now, let's talk about our activity. Jesus is turning and he's addressing those who are his disciples, and he says, you must be. This is a command. It is not optional. It is non-negotiable for those of us who are believers in Christ. It's, it's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. And Jesus is saying that if we are to be his disciples, we must be then perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, we see that unless, I, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, as we described, has, have already lowered the standard of God, and Christ is elevating the standard back to the standard that God had set before the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees lowered the standard down to a level that they believed that they could live up to. But even though they thought they were living up to their standard, they were still falling short of their own standard, much less the standard of God. And in their self-righteousness, he's saying to them, you are not living up to the standard of God. No matter how much you claim, you are still hypocrites because you are not living a righteousness. You are not living a perfect life in order to receive or to earn your own access independently of God into heaven. But yet we have a responsibility, don't we, to live righteously? For some would say, well, if Jesus died for me, therefore he's done it all, therefore I don't have to do anything, so therefore I can live my life any way I want to. That's not accurate. Jesus, again, in all six of the heartstrings, the attitudes of the heart that we've been talking about, says that we are to live to a higher standard. His disciples are continually to push and to press toward a higher standard. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Again, the Bible says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, he is holy, he is perfect, he is righteous, and we who are his children must press, must strive for, must move toward 
in ourselves this aspect of perfection. There's, a, there's an act that we must do in order to, to I don't want to call it assist, but in order to, to go with God. It's a passage that I want to take a look at in the testimony of the Apostle Paul. In our next slide, you'll see in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is struggling pretty much with what you and I struggle with. Because, you know, we know that we have an aspect of, of, of righteousness. We know that we must make choices. And yet, in our choices, we have this frustration because, you see, perfection is, is while a goal, we know that it's unattainable. And no matter how much discipline or how much effort we put forth, put forth we know that perfection just isn't something that we can grasp. And yet we, like the Apostle Paul, must have to admit that this too must be our testimony. For he says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12, Now that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Isn't that interesting? Now that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not that. The Apostle Paul is, is very much aware of the reality of his imperfection. Not that I have already obtained this. He knows that he has not yet obtained perfection. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a large portion of the New Testament, who has been a missionary in, in three different journeys and has seen tens of thousands of people saved and established dozens of churches that are influencing the whole continent and the whole nation around him is saying to us, he and all of his effort has not attained perfection. I don't know about you, but that kind of go, wow, makes me feel pretty, pretty good about my effort. How about you? It says in verse 13, brothers, those of us who are in Christ, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. In other words, he's putting the past behind him. Notice he says in the next verse, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is he pressing forward and doing what? What's he moving toward? To be perfect, to be more like Christ. I'm pressing forward toward the goal, toward the prize. What is the goal and what is the prize? To be like Jesus, to look like Jesus, to live like Christ, to represent and to reflect his character and his nature. He himself is pressing forward. There is a sense of desire, of discipline, of determination, of direction. He is pressing forward. He is putting forth some effort. You've got to put forth some effort. We both, in this whole aspect of perfection, of perfection. We are passive, yes, he does it for us, but we are also active in that we must choose you this day whom you will serve. And as Christ's followers, he empowers us, and yet we must still strive, we must still struggle, we must still choose, we must still move in the direction on a day-to-day -day basis, moment by moment, decision by decision, thought by thought, word per word, listening to the right things, seeing the right things, choosing the right things. He's not just going to zap us with perfection. We must submit to God, resist the devil, 
and then he will flee. You see, there's, there's an aspect in which we are actively involved in this sanctifying, perfect work that God wants to do in us to conform us and to mold us into the likeness of Christ. I don't know about you, but it'd be great if, if God just zapped me and all of a sudden I was like Jesus. I was perfect. But is, has that happened yet? Come on, has that happened yet? Has that happened yet? Why not? I just told you I was perfect. I'm not yet totally and completely like Christ, but neither are you. I spent a couple hours yesterday afternoon cleaning my garage. I don't know what it is about Wichita, but with the wind that's here, I mean, just stuff finds its way in my garage. How about yours? That's one thing I like about Wichita. If the wind's not blowing, something's amiss. You know what I'm saying? So every time my garage door goes open, I'm one of those people that, that I like to park in my garage. I don't know about you, but I don't like so much stuff in my garage that I don't park in my garage. I like to park in what I have as a garage. That's what garages are for, people. Okay? Not to hold all your stuff or junk. Anyway. And so twice a year, I pull everything out of my garage, and I sweep it, and I clean it. And I, I'm a little OCD, okay? Anybody know that yet? I like neatness is next to godliness, in my opinion. God is a God of order, and I like things in their places. But I call the place what the place is, not you, but anyway. <clears throat> Your order and my order may be two different things. But I took everything out for several hours, and I got rid of all of the debris that the wind blew in and all of the grass, but also all of the little creepy crawler critters that find their way in my garage and lay their eggs for later to be hatched, and then they'll grow more. There was one interesting critter I found in my garage yesterday. It was a baby mole. And I had fun catching him and showing him off to my neighbor son. And uh, he and I kind of joke about snakes. We've had some snakes and stuff. But anyway, so he came up and it was a baby mole. So these things are in my garage. And when I get it nice and clean, I mean, I take everything out, everything out. Did I say everything? And then it's clean. And then I wipe all of that down, and then I put it back in my garage. I've got a clean garage right now. That's awesome. But you know what? I know next spring I'm going to have to do it again. Why is that? Stuff gets in there. No matter how much spray I put, critters still get in. No matter how many times, you know, I wait till the wind's just right. <laughs> it's not going to, stuff's going to, I'm going to have to do it again and again and again. It's one of those chores that never seems to get done. Is your house, once it's clean, does it stay clean? Why? You're dirty, people. I jokingly tell the custodians around the church, you know, Baptists are a dirty bunch of people. But that's job security, because unless we were dirty people, they would not have employment. We employ people to clean the church. Why? Because dirt happens. Sin is going to happen in your life. 
No matter how much you try to avoid it, no matter how much you try to resist it, you're a carnal human being. You still, according to Romans 6, you're still going to struggle with sin. And in that struggle with sin, you're still going to think the wrong thoughts. You're still going to see the wrong things. You're still going to hear things you shouldn't hear. You're going to say things you shouldn't say, feel things you shouldn't feel. And this, this struggle in there, even though you've been crucified with Christ, sin still remains. For that reason, he gave us 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, we confess it and we repent of it and turn our back on it. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You cannot live a perfect life. But yet we must strive for that. Frustrating, isn't it? it? It's like a job or a task that never gets done but it's still something we must never give up on. If you've given up on it today, come back to the battle. I know it's a war, but don't throw in the towel. Those of you who are, who are covering up your imperfection with hypocrisy, take off the mask. We already know you're not perfect. You can pretend and proclaim all you want, but we know that you are not perfect and you have not lived a perfect life. So stop trying to fool us. You can't fool God, much less us. And we know you're not perfect. And come back to Christ and put forth the effort, the real effort of a changed heart, not just an outer exterior that's nothing more than hypocrisy. Now, as we look at the third point, I want the deacons to come up, and I want them to begin to get ready for the Lord's Supper, if you would, guys. Because, you see, the call leads to a command, but the neat thing about the command is there's a collaborative effort where Jesus provides for us what we lack. He becomes our sufficiency. For the Bible says that we must be perfect. The words must be are also a promise. You will be perfect. You're not yet perfect, but you will be perfect. You are in the process of being perfected in Christ. You are in the process of being perfected in Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's good news. Matthew, our oldest son, had a little inscription. I've told you this before, next to his bed, and the inscription said, please be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. God is not finished with you yet. Aren't you glad? Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad he's not finished with you because you ain't perfect yet. Look him back in the eye and say, you know what? You're not either, and I'm waiting on him to do a real transformational work in your life starting today. Go ahead, deacons, start, start spreading that out as soon as you get it. So let's take a look at this collaborative effort. You must be. It's a promise, and this promise is to drive us to Jesus because we recognize and realize the frustration of our own inadequacies and our own inadequacies and our own efforts, and we are driven to the one who then, through a process, is sanctifying us and changing us moment by moment and day by day into the likeness of Jesus. And no matter how long you have been on this journey, you're not there yet. You've not yet arrived. Notice in the text, I want you to look at, 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 at three things. First of all, the collaborative effort, the collaboration, 
in progress. First of all, God works in us to raise us from our own past, to raise us up from our own past. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. And before you came to faith in Christ, you were dead. I don't know how many dead people you've seen, but dead means no life. They don't move. They don't breathe. They don't have any life at all. And then all of a sudden, he sought you out, and he breathed new life into you and put faith in your heart and helped you see and recognize that Jesus was the answer to your deadness. And through faith in him, he raised you up with Christ and seated you in the heavenlies. And now you can now enjoy this beautiful work that he's done for you. What work? You see, the only way that this sacrifice could have died on the altar called Calvary is that he must be perfect. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7, 28, that he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus was perfect. He was the perfect lamb. He had never sinned. And because he had never sinned, we see in, in 1 Peter 2, 24, he then was able to bear. He bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin. We might now die to sin. We might now die to sin and live to righteousness and live to righteousness. We died to sin so that we might now live to righteousness. For by a single offering, Hebrews 10, 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You now stand in the perfect work of Christ on the cross, and you now stand in his righteousness, not on your own. You now have been justified by the atoning, redeeming work of Christ on the cross. You've been raised up with him, according to God through Romans 6, to live this wonderful new life. So not only did God raise us up from our past, but notice nextly, he reflects into our present. For you see, it's not only about the past, but there's a present activity of this cleansing. You see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, notice what it says, are being transformed into the same image, the image of who? The image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. You are being transformed in this daily progression from one degree to another. Each step is another degree, and day by day, he is working in your life to perfect you into the likeness of Christ. Hopefully, you're nothing like you were yesterday as you are today, and you're nothing like today what you're going to be tomorrow because he's working in you. The Bible says that we are living stones. He is the chief cornerstone. And according to Second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, not only are we living stones, but notice what he says. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The chief cornerstone is building this beautiful temple with stones, and we are living stones because he is alive. But as a living stone, he's building a temple. A temple meaning what? A temple where he resides in us. What does he reside in? A holy temple. He's residing in us through the Holy Spirit. 
and the Holy Spirit residing in us is now, we now become his dwelling place. But as his dwelling place, we are then being prepared for service for his priesthood as holy priests. He is working in us to mold us into righteousness, into perfection, into holiness. Day by day, he's working to perfect you into the image of Christ. It's a present reality. He's working right now to make you look just like Jesus. Adding and taking away. Adding and taking away. You're going through some things right now that you may not like, but God is using every moment, every circumstance, every trial, every temptation, every test, every relationship, everything right now. He loves you that much and has a definite design in your life that much to use everything in your life, not wasting a single millisecond of any activity that he has in your life to mold you and to shape you presently like Jesus. Right now, if you're a disciple, he's moving you closer and closer to the likeness of Jesus. But notice number three in this collaborative effort. God works in us to realize this beautiful promise. It's a realized promise. It's a realized promise. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you somewhat. Nobody says? Sanctify you what? Sanctify you what? Sanctify you what? Completely. What does completely mean? Totally. And may your whole spirit and your whole soul and your whole body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is moving you and he's sanctifying you to the point that he's going to bring you to completion. Notice what he says in Romans 8, 28 and 30. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Don't go over that too quickly. One more time. Look at it. Those whom he foreknew, he also, what? Predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might, God, might be the firstborn Christ, the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here we see this beautiful destiny, this eternal destiny of those of us who are in Christ. For he predestined us, he foreknew us, he sought us out, and now we are predestined to be what? Completely like Christ. When is that work going to be done? When you're glorified. I, I know this, I know you got something in your hand, so just listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice what he says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed 
in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. What saying that is written? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus today as your personal Savior, and he's the Lord of your life, you now have been given his victory. And it's that victory that we celebrate today. I want to ask you to stand up. I know that's difficult, but stand up. I want you to get together as families for just a second. And I want you as families to share in this communion service. And we're going to give you just a couple of minutes. You can't take long. And I want you to lead your families in the communion. And I want someone to pray. And let's thank Jesus. And let's thank the Father for the cleansing work of the Spirit who has given us our victory. Remain standing, if you would, with me. I want to go to our last point, and it'll be quick. While our praise team comes and we get ready to share in this invitation time. Time of commitment. Christ has called us, he has commanded us, and he has cooperated with us so that we might be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He has provided all that we need. And yet we see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you. When did that work begin? When you came to faith in Christ. He sought you out. He saved you. 
And now he brought you into this beautiful relationship with God the Father through his redemptive and atoning work on the cross. And he's called us to perfection. This is a beautiful passage. I don't know about you, but it says that God never gives up on you. God's not giving up on you. He's not. He's a faithful God. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to work in your life until you are and become like Christ. As frustrating as it is, struggles and the trials and the difficulties, he is working in you right now to move you toward the likeness of his son. Perfect as he was perfect. When is that work going to be done? When you die or when Christ returns? I know it's frustrating and I know it's hard and it's not easy, but Christ didn't promise an easy life. We must step outside of the crowd, commit our hearts and lives to Christ, and know that because we are eternally secure in Jesus, that he will be faithful to complete the work that began in you. What is our commitment? The same as the Apostle Paul's. Not that we have already obtained this or am ready to be perfect, but we press on. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't stop. Don't lose hope. Press on. Press on. For you are not yet complete. One day you will be, but not just yet. Be patient with yourself, but press on. Be patient with others as they press on. And pray that as God continues to work in you, that he will bring you to completion as he continues to work in you. morning. Let me try that one more time. Can I have your attention today? It's our joy to uh, join Grayson in his commitment to faith in Christ as he publicly makes that commitment to follow Christ in baptism today, having placed his faith and trust in Jesus and committed his heart and life to Christ. It's our pleasure to baptize him as a church family. 
He has family here today. So if you're his family and you've come to celebrate this time together with him as a family, would you stand? If we have family and friends here, could you stand at this time? See him over there, buddy? All right, anybody here that's a church family that would like to support Grayson in this decision, would you stand? All right. Grayson, have you trusted Jesus yes. as your Savior and Lord? It's my privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours today to celebrate this new life that's come to faith in you. Build a hedge of protection around him. Keep him close to you at all times and use him for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.